Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Sonia Woodhouse. Sonia is the Chief Executive of Carers Trust Heart of England. Sonia, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you very much for inviting me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Sonia. Um, the purpose of this podcast is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is being put to the test, perhaps more so than ever in the current climate with the emergence of COVID-19, no less. Being, of course, involved in the care industry and very much on the front line, as it were, Sonia, just how much of a challenge has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks and months? It, it has been extremely challenging. Um, as you said, um, we're a charity, Care Trust part of England, the charity that delivers regulated care. So we go into vulnerable people's homes and deliver care so that they can stay in their own homes. And we deliver over 2,000 hours of care every single week. Um, and on top of that, we also support unpaid family carers. And so that's people like you and me who might be looking after our mum and dad or um, a parent carer is looking after a disabled child. Um, during the pandemic, what we have found is that uh, more people are becoming carers because <clears throat> they are looking after a, a neighbour, they take on caring responsibilities, they're looking after a friend. Um, so our services are absolutely vital, both for people in their own homes, but also carers as well. And we've been able to um, really weather this storm, I suppose, is by um, our brave, dedicated, wonderful staff. Um, they've been working through um, this pandemic the whole time, going into people's homes, even whilst they've been anxious about their own homes, their own health, their own family. Um, and we've been delivering all of our carer services, working from home on the telephone and online. We've had to adapt really, really quickly. Um, and change everything that we're doing in the services that we provide. We're providing more services around emotional um, support. We've been looking at contingency planning, and we've been providing emergency services because the biggest fear that carers have is, what will happen if I get ill? Mm. And so we can step in within an hour um, and actually go in and provide care until the local council is able, or the family is able to step in and provide that care for somebody. And, and we've had to do that um, by being decisive and agile and adapting what we've been doing. And we've been very, very successful at that. Mm, that's certainly encouraging that it's been sort of a successful response uh, to the uh, the pandemic that you've mustered there, uh, Sonia, for sure. Um, I suppose yeah. you mentioned there that, of course, your staff have really stepped up to the plate here and brought out the best in themselves in times of adversity. But I suppose from a leadership perspective, um, managing sort of their mental health and well-being has been quite challenging because people do react to different things differently, don't they? And some may need a little bit more reassurance among the worry and the uncertainty and about their safety, whereas yeah. others may be more inclined to just try and crack on with things and get their head down? Yes, um, staff have uh, reacted in very, very different ways. And so, yes, there has been anxiety, particularly with our frontline staff and going out. But also what we found was um, we employ about 160, 170 people, it fluctuates, and um, at least 80 of our staff have been working from home alone. And that's been a very different way for them to be working and for some people, they've taken to that and they think it's fantastic. For other people, it's been extremely difficult. And so we've been doing a whole range of things 
to make sure that we look after the well-being of our staff, not only our customers. So we've been uh, we've uh, got an online platform with resilience training. We've been doing things like making sure that we have regular team meetings. And and as a as a leader, you know, as the chief exec, I've been turning up to those meetings. They've been virtual, um, but. I've been going to those meetings to make sure that staff, that I'm still visible and they still know that I'm there. I did loads of things at the beginning, like putting out um, tips for working at home because I've worked from home throughout my career. Um, and um, so people could, in the first instance, it was all, all strange to them. So we did all of those sorts of things. We did some fun things as well. So uh, put on some quizzes, um, encourage people to have a cuppa, a virtual cuppa, with a colleague, mm. um, so that we keep spirits up, because we've had to, we we have had so much more extra work. Obviously, anybody delivering frontline services and and changing all the new guidance and things like that has had loads of extra pressure. But also on our carer side, we've had to change everything. One of our workers um, supports elderly Asian carers, and uh, she felt that none of the uh, community would be able to access the services that we were available, you know, putting, making available online. Um, and she's been amazed, and, and she's amazed us as well. Um, she's got a, a massive group of uh, Asian elder, elders who are uh, communicating through WhatsApp, um, and it's really fantastic. And she's also delivering um, meditation and yoga to them. So, And our staff are taking those things up as well. So we're looking after both our carers and our, our staff as well. Mm, so it seems there's plenty going on um, on the, that side of things, which again is um, very positive. Um, with regard to sort of the support that you've received in the sector during this time from the government in terms of guidelines, especially, of course, there's been a great deal of debate about just sort of how clear and concise they've been. Um, for you, Sonia, personally, how have you sort of found it? Have you been satisfied that you've known fully what's been expected of you as a provider throughout and continue to do so? Or has it been just that little bit more complicated than that? It's, it's been more complicated. It's been good and bad. Um, and in the beginning of the guidance, we work across two local authority areas. We work across Coventry and Warwickshire. And in the beginning, we were getting guidance from, um, you know, masses of different areas. Um, you know, NHS England, um, uh, Department of Health and Social Services, from the different councils, from Skills for Care, from the CQC. And um, sometimes you could get four or five different loads of guidance coming in a day. And by the time you've read them, you realise one set of guidance actually was telling you something completely different and opposite to another set of guidance. But that did settle down. Uh, in the first few weeks, that was really difficult. And then it has settled down. Um, and it, it is. we are spending, my senior management team and myself are working very long hours during this. Um, just to make sure that we are keeping people safe, keeping our customers safe, keeping our staff safe, and making sure that we are following the latest guidelines, particularly around PPE um, and safety. And it's been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many people this COVID-19 situation but on the show this week Sonia what we are trying to um, establish is what is the silver lining in this sort of dark and dense cloud Um, so is there anything that you can take as a positive that you and your organisation have seen during this time? Absolutely Um, we have learned a lot Um, just um, we're engaging more um, and as I said previously you know those online trainings and meditation setting up new platforms and what we have learned is that 
that actually people will, um, you know, none of us were using Zoom, none of us were using Microsoft Teams and things like that previously, and now people are more used to it. And so moving forward, when we do come out of uh, COVID, we want to take a far more blended approach, so we won't be leaving behind the things that we have been doing during this time, but we do want to also go back to some of our, our services. But what we have found during this time is we've got a much greater reach to people. So we want to have that blended approach. In our regulated care, our staff who would normally be in the office have been out in the field visiting care support workers, visiting uh, our customers. And actually, they've absolutely thrived on that. And so when we come out of COVID, you know, why bring those people back into the office? They, they're far better placed and we're getting far better support to both our care support workers and our customers by them being out. So, yeah, from our point of view, lots of learning and lots of things that we will take forward. That's certainly encouraging uh, to hear, Sonia, uh, for sure. And thinking about now taking things forward into the new normal that everybody's talking about, particularly over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, what do you think is on the horizon for yourself and for the Carers Trust Heart of England? And what do you really hope to achieve during this period? Yeah, we're not over COVID yet. Um, and as I was saying, we've learned a lot. We understand a lot more. Um, we still need to innovate and change. And we need to be able to re- restore some of our service provision, some of our face-to-face work that we do with carers because COVID has, has really put a lot of pressure on unpaid carers, um, family members. Um, you know, it has been a terrible time for some carers. They've not been able to say goodbye to um, their loved ones um, when, unfortunately, they've passed away during this time. Um, it's been a very difficult time for people and the economy. And I suppose one of my concerns is that we, we've had some, one of the really positive things that has been come from COVID has been for our care support workers who are paid workers going to people's home and providing home care. And the public have really got behind them, really recognised and valued the work that they've been doing in in society. My concern is that uh, we don't address the issues facing adult social care and we forget about the wonderful work that our care workers have delivered. Without the support of our care workers then um, and unpaid family carers, the NHS and the social care system would collapse. And so we really need to see a cross-party working group involving voluntary sector and providers to look at solutions and develop a way forward. The sector has been underfunded for many years now. We've been waiting for a green paper on social care for many years now, and it hasn't happened. And really, we need to address that issue, and we need to be looking at what the solutions are, what have we learned, what are the solutions, and we need to have a very integrated system between NHS and social care, and we need to include family carers in that. And I suppose in the, in the short term, the future for us is very good as a charity. We, You know, we've been very passionate and solution-focused. We've attracted a lot more funding because we're delivering different services, and we've really built our reputation during this time. So over the next year, we're being asked to look at new ways of doing things. So for us, it's a really exciting time. But as I said, long term, I feel the sector will continue to be underfunded and that will place more pressure on our family carers.
Mm, I think you're absolutely right, Sonia. It's going to be a very uncertain time going forward and let's certainly hope that it's going to be positive news on the uh, horizon for sure. And to be honest, given how informative it's been having you come onto the show and join us today to discuss some of these issues, I think it would be wonderful to catch up in the next um, few months and have you back on just to see where we are at at that point. That would be fantastic. I think it would be as well, Sonia, because at the moment, of course, we can only really speculate on what's to come. And it's another thing entirely actually assessing what comes around once it has happened. Um, Until we do hopefully touch base again, and it's been a real pleasure having you join us today. um, Please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because I think we both well know that we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Scott. It's been great talking to you. I was speaking today to Sonia Woodhouse, Chief Executive of Carers Trust Heart of England. And for those tuning into this and listening today, please do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and others, because it does make a real difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his professional career, Sir Andrew actually became one of only three England captains to secure the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, joining a very illustrious club there. And he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since his retirement, he has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed about, you know, literally all my life. 
and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that 
just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and 
mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over to the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But 
actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.